Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, why don't you find the book of First Peter. First Peter, my name is Chad. Uh, so good to meet you tonight. And I'm one of the young adult pastors, have the privilege of serving on staff here. And so excited to get back in this letter that a guy named Peter wrote several thousand years ago. And so if you are new to the Bible, I want to invite you to grab a copy of God's Word. You can pull it out on your phone and follow along with where we're headed tonight. First uh, Peter is the book that we are in, or the letter actually um, would be uh, more... Um, accurate to say. A guy named Peter wrote it, and we're going to be in the third chapter. So First Peter chapter 3, we've been walking through this epistle that Peter wrote, and uh, we've just been standing on the Word of God, and we've uh, allowed God to begin to speak into our lives through uh, this letter that we believe was inspired by the very mind of God through the, the penmanship of Peter, actually the, the voice of Peter, and, and he spoke it to a guy. And so, man, we are so excited to get into God's Word. And, man, I'm, I'm just excited even just echoing uh, what my brother Josiah prayed, that um, the reality is, is what, where we're headed tonight could seriously impact some of y'all's um, eternal destiny. Now, that's a big loaded statement, and I just want to say that I truly believe that with all of my heart, and so I'm glad that you made the choice to be here um, on a, a beautiful night uh, coming off of a holiday weekend, and so I'm so excited uh, that you're here. Man, anybody have a good holiday weekend? Everybody? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, okay, thank you. Appreciate that. I had a great time. It was beautiful weather. Um, I got to hang out with my family. I love, love, love hanging out with my girls. Um, I have uh, three daughters, so y'all pray for me. I'm doing Adopt-A-Pastor program for $39.99. You can support me so that I can pay off all the bills that I'm about to get with my children. Um, anyway, um, and my wife. And, man, we just had a great time uh, hanging out, getting outside in the weather. And, and I just love uh, being a dad. Uh, one of the greatest pleasures that I have at being a dad is just coming home and seeing my girls and they're at a really magical age right now. Uh, the oldest, Lydia, she's five. The second, uh, Elizabeth, she's four. And then the newborn, four months, Anna Joy. And one of my most favorite things to do is to come home and to have stopped by the store on the way home and to pick up flowers. Uh, my four-year-old just celebrated her fourth birthday, and she said, Daddy, I want to go see flowers. So she loves flowers. I think it's written into the DNA code of every female that you just kind of have a draw towards flowers. So guys, if you're here tonight trying to make a good impression on a girl. Flowers always help with that, okay? Flowers will cover up your facial disorientation that you may have going on. Um, and so anyway, um, I'll get flowers and I'll come home and, and, I, and I just love pulling out, the, you know, put them behind my back and say, oh, girls, I got a surprise for you. And they're like, I'm like, close your eyes. And they get really excited. Like they're special age. They're so excited. And I pull out the flowers and like they just go ecstatic over the flowers. And I always like to try to attach meaning to something that's maybe ordinary so that when they receive a gift, they're not just receiving receiving a gift, but they're receiving a blessing. And so I'll ask them, I'll get down their level and say, uh, hey, hey, do you know why I'm giving you flowers? And they're like, no, but I really want the flower. And I'm like, I'm giving you flowers because this flower, it's beautiful, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, it is. I'm like, well, you're beautiful to my eyes. And this flower, it's soft, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's soft. I said, well, you are, you're soft and you're delicate. And I wanted to give you a flower because you are my flower. And I give them this flower, and they love it, and they cherish it, they look at it. And, and one of the other cool things about being a dad of daughters my age is that it's like an ego trip every time I go home. When I go home, they're like, Dad's home, you know, and it's like WrestleMania in a you know, girl version, and it's clean anyway. And so it's just so exciting. You know, they get on, we do the tickle slide. It's something that sounds weird, but it's really not, trust me. And then we do the washing machine, and it's Dad's home, and it's this big ego trick trip. And they love, they love being home, or being, being home with daddy. 
Now, one of my biggest fears is that one day, and I hope it doesn't happen, I've seen it happen to so many people, is that they'll, they'll make this switch, you know, like where right now they really want me, and I hope, I hope with all my heart they're listening right now, please listen up, write this down, girls, um, that, that they don't just want my stuff and not me. Like I've seen this, you know, where people prefer, prefer the gift rather than the giver, you know. And maybe some of you, that's, that's your relationship with your parents. Like dad's there to help you get money to go get some ice cream at Andy's, but he, you really don't want him going with you. Like dad's there to pay the tuition, but you really don't want him, you know, hanging out with you at all. And, I, man, one of my greatest fears is that in my life that my kids will move from enjoying the flowers, enjoying the gifts, and they'll say, Dad, just give me your stuff. I don't want you anymore. And, and I think that this is such a great picture for what happens in our relationship with God because, see, the purpose of my giving things to my daughters is not so that they have nice things. Like, I want them to have nice things, but every gift that I give them is meant to reinforce my relationship with them. That because I am their dad, because I have a relationship with them, I give them gifts. I don't give them gifts in order to earn that relationship. And I think a lot of us have come in here tonight, listen, I think our relationship with God is predicated upon this idea that we would rather have his things rather than God himself. And then I think that a lot of times we, um, we start going after the wrong things in our faith because we want God to bless us or we want his favor in our life. But God's saying, look, look, you've missed the point. And that the point of every gift that's given in every relationship is not meant to have the glory extend or, or conclude on the gift, but it's meant to bring the, the relationship closer. And Peter's going to show us some amazing things about the gospel tonight. And I'm so excited about where we're headed tonight because he's going to show us some amazing things about the gospel. Then he has this weird kind of um, like answer to a question that's kind of mysterious if you've been in the Bible uh, for some time or you follow Jesus for some time. And then he's going to tell us like what all this means for us as believers and so if you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now before we get to the gospel, which Peter's going to explode in verse 18, we've got to understand like what is the gospel. And I want to give you just a real quick overview of what the gospel is. See, the gospel is this word, if you're new to church, it, it literally means or it simply means good news. But for a lot of us, like the gospel, the story of Jesus is just news. Like it's, we haven't really declared it good uh, because it's just kind of, it hadn't moved us much. Like good news, that moves you, you know, great news. It excites you, like you're excited about getting good news because you understand the bad news. But for a lot of us, the gospel, it's just, it's just news because we don't call it good. That in order for something to be good news, you got to understand the bad news. Like the truck that I drive, uh, I just bought it. Oh, I just bought the truck. Anyway, my wife comes home and she said, Chad, I'm okay. And I'm like, oh, that's news. Yeah, you're okay, and you look good. Okay, all right. Anyway, so she's like, I'm okay. And I'm like, oh, good, good, okay, great. It's just news. But then she said, but something happened while I was out. I was like, oh, okay, so you're okay. That's good news. Now give me the bad news. She said, I may or may not have probably did hit a yellow pole in the Starbucks drive-thru in your truck. But I cleaned it with hand wipes, and it's not that bad. So I got a little love mark on the side of my truck, all right? It's character, baby. It's character. So in order for news to be good, man, you sometimes have to understand the bad news. And the scripture is going to tell us the, the worst news we could ever possibly hear. 
to be honest, like the scripture's gonna unapologetically tell you some really bad news. And it's that you have an enemy tonight. And the enemy that we have tonight is not an enemy that is, that is material. It's not like ISIS or, or Trump or not Trump, wherever you stand on that. It's not, um, you know, somebody that you know, went to high school with, somebody you went to college with. It's not, it's not something material. Actually, the enemy that we're facing tonight is very, very immaterial. That the enemy we're facing tonight is spiritual. And I know some of you already have headed right where I, I probably would have headed if, if I were you is that you're like, oh, right, he's going Satan, El Diablo, the devil, the enemy of the church. Yeah, no, no, the, the enemy that a lot of us face tonight, and I believe our biggest enemy that we see in Scripture is actually God. Now, that can be really confusing, so let, let me explain before you're like, all right, this brother's done gone whack. He's rapping. He's now saying God's our enemy. I don't know what's going on. Let me explain. See, God has the greatest power to destroy you than anything else. He's the life giver, but he's also the life taker. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10, 28. He said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Deuteronomy 4, 27. <laughs> this is crazy. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. Isaiah 63, 3 through 4, probably one of the scariest verses I've ever read. I got to study through Isaiah uh, last year and just walked through it, and I got to this is towards the end of the prophet Isaiah's book, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is scary. This is like freaky, scary stuff, all right? He says this, the Lord your God. It's like, the Lord your God, yay, Jesus, all right? The Lord your God has trodden the winepress alone. He says, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. To, tr to trod in a wine press, that's just like a big, go uh, big bowl where like, like you just imagine God's like river dancing on some, some uh, grapes. Like, you know, doing whatever. I don't, I don't know river dance, but you know what I'm saying. Like he is, he is trampling like this, like you used to stomp them ants back in the day. And he says, I've trodden the wine press alone, for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood, check this out, is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. Like when you read the Bible holistically, you find out this real quickly, that God don't play games. And he is a scary and a mighty God. It says this in Romans 5.10 that we were once enemies of God. Like we were diabolically opposed to him. James 4.4 4 says, don't you know, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, if you love the world and the things in the world and your heart is grabbed by those things, he says, don't you know that that is enmity with God? Like the scripture is going to tell us this crazy news that we have come in here tonight and you've got to listen and this is going to sting. It's going to come across as like, who are you to tell me all of this stuff? And, I, and I'm sorry, but not really. I'm just standing on the word of God. Please don't shoot uh, the messenger. I'm just the mailman. I don't write it. I deliver it, okay? And so Jesus says this through Paul in Romans 3.10. He says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And so you come up here all dolled up tonight like, hey, girl, got my stilettos on, got my nails done, did. It is summertime, ready for my, you know, beach time, whatever. You know, you got it going on. But he's saying, no, you don't. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And he says, because we don't fear God. 
but what's the big deal? Like, what, like sin, like what's it matter, you know? I mean, we all got a little sin. I mean, everybody got a little sin issue. We all got issues, right? Um, ain't nobody perfect. But what is sin? Well, see, sin matters because God has created a moral law in which he will execute justice in that moral law. And so no one's off the hook. In sin, it has this infectious ability to infect everything about us. Like Tiger Woods, y'all remember Tiger Woods? You show a picture of him real quick. Tiger Woods back in the day, man, he was like on point. 2008, he had had 14 major uh, golf victories. And like, I mean, he was just, he was the, the best on the, the scene. He's still one of the top 10 athletes endorsed in the world today. And, and there was a guy whose record he was trying to break, a guy named Jack Nicholas, who had 18 titles. And so, man, Tiger was at his prime. He had, you know, he already had 14. All he needed was five more to be the greatest golfer of all time. And in 2008, about nine years ago, his inside became outside and his character showed through. And last weekend, he got in trouble. Y'all see a picture of Tiger real quick. Oh, yeah, bro. Like, how many of y'all had a good Memorial Day weekend? Not Tiger. <laughs> yeah. He said, man, I wasn't drinking, man. My medicine got off. Yeah, right. And, man, I mean, one thing after another, 20 women that he's been with, different incarcerations like what, take, like what took place this weekend. And, and see, what, what happens is oftentimes we think that our material success can cloak over our issues but sin, it infects everything, and our material success cannot overcome sin's power. That you brought in here this idea that you think if you can kind of muster up enough courage to get everything right, get the right job, get the right girl, get the right house, that your material success will somehow outweigh your sin in your life. But sin's power cannot be stymied or quenched by your material success. It's going to take something way more than that. And this is a profound, hard reality that God will guarantee the guilty a punishment that they rightly deserve in a place called hell, in a prison called hell that makes Alcatraz look like Disneyland. And the gospel is going to tell us that, it, that there's good news, but at first it's only going to be good when we understand the gravity and the weight of the bad news. That we are desperately wicked more than we could ever have fathomed. Oh, but the Bible chases the bad news with this gospel, with this good news that we are loved, hopelessly loved, more than we ever had imagined. And that Christ didn't leave us in our chaos, but he saved us. I was 22 when this reality became clear to me, man. I was, uh, I was um, a young adult, excuse me, I was 20. I was a young adult, a sophomore in college, man, and God was robbing me from all of my, all of my pleasure and, and all, the, all the things that I was pursuing and my lust and my education and my athletics. And he, he brought me to this point of brokenness where I began to understand the gravity of my sin, and I don't know if you come to that place in your life where you're just like, God, I am wretched. This Romans 7, Paul says, oh, the, the good I know I ought to do, I don't do. But God, I am wretched. Who's going to save me from this prison of sin? 
It was in that moment my sophomore year in college that, that the weight of my sin, it fell upon me. And I said, God, I, I need you to save me. In my sin, it seemed like I was just treading water and I was sinking deep and losing myself. And then God rescued me. And when I understood the depth of my sin and the bad news that God was diabolically opposed, that he was my greatest enemy in my unrighteousness, but he has become my greatest advocate in his righteousness, that he reached down and redeemed me and plucked me from the pit of my own personal hell that I was digging myself in. God changed me and he can change you too. And the gospel explodes on the pages of Scripture. And Peter is going to unfold this amazing truth tonight that we don't have to remain an enemy to God, that we can know Christ, that we can know the creator, the universe maker, we can know the star breather, and we can know him with great intimacy. And this is an amazing truth. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to point you to verses, verse 18, 3, 1 Peter 3, 18. He says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You can circle that phrase. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He starts out, for Christ also suffered once for sins. This word for connects it back to what he had said previously. And last week we looked at this great uh, statement that, that Peter makes. He says, give them the reason. Give them the reason for the hope that lies within you, and he's going to continue to build upon the reason. I love that Peter would come back to the gospel over and over and over throughout his epistle, and he says, man, this is the, the reason is that Christ says he has died once and all for all for your sins. And this is loaded because our sins, man, our sins are what sent Christ to the cross. What he's doing on the cross is he is dying for you. He's dying for me. He's dying for those things that we did back in 93. He's dying for the things that you did in 2015. He's dying for the things that you have done in your past. But he's also dying for the very heart that beats inside of your chest. Because sin that he died for is not just something we get into, but sin is something that got into us. That trouble is not something we just kind of dabble in but trouble dabbled inside of us and our heart is wicked to the core and Jesus died once for our sins and this is the gospel and he goes on he says the just for the unjust he's building upon this great exchange is what the reformers called it I'm just a country boy so I call it a dang good deal your sin all your junk all your dysfunction for Christ's righteousness like let's make a deal right Man, this is good news. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 2, 24. He said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That Jesus, he dies, the unjust, or excuse me, the just for the unjust, his, uh, his righteousness for our sin, the great exchange, the gospel, the good news. But why? What's the gift for that the point of the gospel is found here in the rest of the verse. He says that he might bring us to God. Y'all circle that phrase. That's the point of the gospel that Peter's trying to make. 
If you're taking notes tonight, point number one, that the point of the gospel is that we get God, that he brings us to God. This is an interesting Greek verb that Peter uses in the noun form of the verb is an introducer. It's somebody who brings you to somebody else. It's uh, prosagagosis, prosagagosis. And what it means in the Greek is it's an intercessor or an introducer or a giver of access that the king would have an official or a prosagagosis who had the responsibility to screen everybody and determine who got through the door into the king's throne room. Kind of like a bouncer, okay? A prosagagosis, kind of like a bouncer at a club. You shouldn't know what that is, but I know that you know what that is. All right. And so, just being honest. All right, people. Okay. And so he had a prosagagosis, a guy that allowed people to into the king's throne room. So Jesus, he becomes the introducer. He becomes the prosagagosis. He becomes the one who opens the door and lets us into the throne room of God so that we no longer have to go through some ritual rites the, to make us have access to God or give us the cleanliness. Jesus says, look, I got you. Come on, man. I'm going to give you backstage passes to, to the king of glory. You don't have to be out with the common folk. Come on backstage. I got you. He's the introducer. He says, look, I want to introduce you to my, my daddy, to my king, the greatest person you've ever seen. I mean, he wants to tell you that Jesus, or Jesus is wanting to tell you that God is his father and you can know him. And the point of the gospel is that we get God. And I pray, oh God, I pray that this point becomes a reality to you. That you don't just want God for his stuff. That God has this way of purging us um, from the pleasures that maybe we have once found. Like God has a way of taking us into a wilderness because he wants to get us down to the bedrock of believing that he is our God and he's enough. That maybe some of you are coming here tonight, man, you're in a dark season, just to be honest. Like you, you know that you know God, but maybe you're in a dark season tonight. There's a guy named St. John of the Cross is what we refer to him as, and he wrote a, um, a, a, a poem and a writing called The Dark Night of the Soul in which he talks about how God robbed him from all pleasures in life, the pleasure of his community, the pleasure of his worship service, the pleasure of his scripture reading, and he was in this place of darkness. He was literally in solitary confinement for his Christianity, and he said, but God was enough. I got to go uh, turkey hunting a couple weeks ago with our pastor, Phil Hopper, and uh, we, uh, I, I didn't know we were going to this place, but there was a, a place where he got us access to, and turns out it was Dayton Moore's um, like country home or whatever. So, man, here I am getting a turkey hunt with, like, the, you know, the epitome of masculinity, Phil Hopper, um, on Dayton Moore, who's the GM of the Royals land. And I'm like, man, who is, like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm somebody, you know, whatever. Anyway, so Phil tells me, he's like, hey, uh, meet me out there about, about 5.30. We need to get out there before the sun comes up. <laughs> so, man, Phil meets me out there. It's pitch black. And he's like, hey, buddy, you ready? Because that's what you do if you've never been hunting. You whisper. It's whisper talk, Okay. Uh, hey, you ready? We're just going to go over here. I'm like, what? Uh, he's like, yeah. uh, okay, yeah, got it. Whisper. Uh, all right. <laughs> anyway, and so we whisper, and, uh, and he says, okay, just, you know. So we head out in the woods, and it's pitch black. And when you get in the woods, it's like dark, dark, all right? I mean, it's really, really dark. And, and just to be honest, you know, men, we're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm following him in the woods, you know. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, Lord, I can't see and I'm like, man, Phil must have night vision or something because that brother's just hush, 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 just walking through the wood. Like, I'm like, come on, man. And, and then, you know, but dudes, like, you know, you know us. We ain't going to be like, 
hey, Phil, I can't see. I'm scared. You know, I'm, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I got this. No longer a slave. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, and man, I, I kind of got worried because once we got in the woods, I lost all vision. And when I was in the middle of the darkness, I had to do two things. I had to stay close and I had to listen. And so there was even multiple times on our journey through the woods, I was like, whoosh, whoosh. Oh. <laughs> whoosh, whoosh. Okay, he's over here. Whoosh, whoosh. I had to make sure I was close to him and I had to listen closely so that I didn't get lost. And that God sometimes will take us into a dark place so that we lose all the comfort of our eyesight and all the pleasures and all the conveniences that we were once accustomed to so that we would just seek to get close to him and to listen to his movement around us. That God wants you to come to the point where you realize you get God. That a lot of us, we treat our Christianity like this. Like we, we come to, to Christ and we're like, man, God, all right, hey, I'm going to walk an aisle, I'm going to pray the prayer because I get one of these, Right? Like, man, I get a get-out-of-hell-free card, man. I ain't got to go to hell. Ain't nobody trying to be hot for that long, you know. Like, summer's good, but seriously, let's have some winter time, okay? Anyway, so we're like, man, I'm, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to walk this aisle. And my mama said, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And, and you were like, no, no. And, and your mama was like, uh, and I don't know if your mama did this or not, but God bless her if she did. Uh, you want to spend forever with mommy and daddy? You're like, yes, yes. We'll pray this prayer. Johnny got baptized, you know, and so we came to Christ early on, man. We're, we're building our faith on like, man, I ain't going to hell. <laughs> got the gospel. But look, when, when, when you think that the point of the gospel is to get something from God, you've missed the point, and, and God will have nothing of it. He'll say, get that out of here. You've missed the point. Coming to me is not about what you get. It's about who you get. And if my daughters, if all they wanted were flowers from me, they would never get them because I wouldn't be there. But when they want their dad and when we want God, they, they get both. And so when we come to God and all we want is his peace or his love or his mercy or his kindness or we don't want to go to hell, God's like, look, man, I won't have anything of that. C.S. Lewis says to aim for heaven and you get earth, but aim for earth and you get neither. When you say, God, I want you for who you are, God says, you can have me. And, oh, yeah, I come with a benefits package. But when you go to God and say, God, I want your benefits, he said, you missed the point, and you get neither. Then a lot of us, I, I fear that if, if we found out that God wasn't in heaven, we would still want to go. But heaven, the point of heaven is God. The point of the gospel is that we get God. We get a right relationship with the, the king of the universe. It's not about what, what you get. It's about who you get. And so Peter goes on to say in verse 18, he says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit. 
Now, now, some of you, you know the story of Jesus, but if you don't, real quickly, Jesus, he died on a cross kind of at the end of his life, obviously, and, and he was buried for three days in a tomb. Uh, you can still visit the tomb today. It's empty, so newsflash, spoiler alert. Um, but anyway, there was this three-day period, and Peter says, look, he died in the flesh, but he was immediately made alive in the spirit because your spirit never dies. And so um, Peter's about to take a stab at, at, at where Jesus went in those three-day period, or in that three-day period. I can just imagine Peter, like, when he met the resurrected Christ, like they're on the, the fish eating, uh, or excuse me, on the fish, they're on the shore eating some fish, hello, blah, blah. anyway, and so, um, and they're eating, and, and, and Peter's like, say Jesus, I don't know if he talked to Jesus like, you know, he was an uh, urban gangster, but I just kind of visited that, say Jesus, hey man, where'd you go when you died? He was like, oh, Peter, man, this is crazy. He said, actually, I started a prison ministry, <laughs> And so here's what Peter says. You'll get this in a minute, okay? <laughs> by whom, also, this is verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Point number two, if you're taking notes, we find out that Jesus went and he declared his dominance to the demons. And this is going to fire me up. Come on now. He declared his dominance to the demons. This word spirits in verse 19 is, is most commonly used to refer to angelic spirits. And so when we ask the question, like, who is he preaching to? He's preaching to these spirits. And, and these spirits, he uses this story of Noah, which we'll get to in just a second. But in the story of Noah, we find out in Genesis 6 that there were these sons of God and they were sleeping with the daughters of men. And this was like a big no-no, and these giants were born, and this was big, big wickedness, and so <clears throat> that's why God actually, or that was part of the reason why God flooded the earth in the days of Noah. Now, these sons of God, most commentators believe that these are actually angelic spirits that have fallen from heaven. See, Satan, he rebelled against God. This is the story. He rebelled against God. This is what happened. He rebelled against God, and he convinced a third of the angels to follow his uh, rebellion. So check this out. A lot of people say, man, if I could see God, I would believe God. I say, man, I don't know. Satan convinced a third of the angels who used to kick it with God to rebel against him. And so that's not a great reason. Anyway, and so <clears throat> the spirits that he's preaching to I believe that Jesus is saying, look, I went and preached to these sons of God who were sleeping with the women of men. And I, and I had I had locked them up. Ain't gonna let them out locked. All right. So uh, anyway, I'd locked them up, and Jesus goes to this place called prison. And the reason why I think he goes to this place is because in Second Peter two four we find out that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now Scripture can sometimes be confusing, but we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and so that this is why we can believe this unapologetically and with confidence. And we also see in Jude verse 6 that in the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, those fallen angels, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so I think that Jesus is preaching to these spirits in prison, but what's he preaching? Now, a lot of people would say that Jesus is going, he's preaching the gospel, and he's kind of giving them a second chance, but I don't believe that because the Greek proclaim is actually the word 
word Caruso, and the word Caruso means that you're a preacher, and, and you're somebody who just kind of heralds news. Now, there's a different word for somebody who heralds the gospel. That word is euangelizo, and so Peter uses Caruso, not euangelizo, and so we could deduce that Peter is saying that Jesus went and proclaimed something to these demonic spirits, and I want to just postulate because we look at Scripture and we get this from even in 1 Peter 3, but other places that Jesus is proclaiming a message of victory. So I see Jesus rolling up on the scene in the prison ministry to the demons, and he starts singing a song like this. Hit it, Charles. Oh, victory in me. I'm the Savior forever. Mic drop. And he's proclaiming his dominance over the demons in this prison. The why, the why that I believe this is because Colossians 2.15, it says this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 1 Peter 3.22, if you go to the end of this section, he says, Jesus who has gone into heaven and has set at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him, that Jesus declares his dominance over the demons. Jesus ain't some mamby-pamby product in his hair driving a convertible cabriolet listening to Taylor Swift. (laughs) He's a mighty warrior, and he's worthy of our respect, and he's a dominator, and he heralds his victory. But I wonder Who's dominating your life? If Jesus is the king of the universe, is he your king? Or I wonder what demons are dominating your life? I found my first pornography magazine when I was eight years old. It's like third grade. Broke into my daddy's toolbox and he was keeping them out in the barn, me and my brother. Man, we were just curious. We broke into them and we kept that little dirty secret. I mean that all, no pun intended. We kept that little dirty secret just between us. And it started me on this long journey of lust and pornography. And man, there, was, there were, there were uh, pathways carved in my brain. And there are images and thoughts that, I, that I, when I came to the, the grips of the weight of my sin, I'm like, God, I need you to purge these things from my mind. And this demon of lust, man, it, it, it had, had gripped my life for most of my life. And, it, and I thought that I knew Christ, but I, but I didn't know his power. I was being dominated by this demon. And Jesus wasn't declaring his dominance over lust and pornography in my life. And then I I became broken over my sin, and I said, God, I need you to invade this space. I need you to come into my life and begin to change me. And through the power of Christ in me waging war against this sin, it no longer has victory in my life, and I'm being no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but God has allowed a transformation to take place in my mind, and I'm praying all the time, Lord, quench my curiosity for those things that seek to seduce my heart daily, moment by moment sometimes, and God restore to me my innocence so that when I gaze at my wife, 
life. Oh God, I want her to be my standard of beauty. Oh God, I want her to be the source in the well of my romance. Oh God, I want to gaze at her and think she is a foxy woman. Oh God, I want to gaze at her and think she is my lily amongst thorns. Oh God, I need you to rob from me the, the, the dirtiness of all those years. I need you to give me power of a renewed mind and he's done it. And so when I look at my daughters, I don't have this delusion or this confusion about what their bodies are meant to be or do, but I have clarity about how God has created them, a child of his, a daughter, a woman. God has restored my purity, and I've experienced his power. Have you? What is dominating your life? If you claim to know Jesus, is he flexing his dominance over the demons in your life? Peter says it like this, backtracking just a little bit in verse 19. He says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through the water. There is also an antitype which saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Third and final note if you're taking notes, there is a big difference between a Observing Jesus and experiencing him. That observing Jesus is not the same thing as experiencing Jesus. And I think a lot of us have brought in here this, this mindset where we know the sufferings of Christ. We've heard the gospel. We understand the gospel intellectually. But Jesus has no authority in our life. That a sign of the end age that Paul writes in 2 Timothy is that they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny his power. And I believe that is the American church today. And we need to wake up to the power that is being extended to Jesus. And I think the problem lies that most of us are observing him and we haven't experienced him. He has power to dominate the demons in your life. And so I think the way that we observe Jesus, we just show up, man. And, and Tuesday night after Tuesday night, maybe if you're new here, please, thank you so much for showing up. Um, we don't expect you just to get it all right away. But if you've been here for a year, two years, and you haven't stepped into serving or taking the next step, and you just kind of ride the fringes, and you're not really all in, like, what's going on? You're just an observer. You're never going to experience the power of Christ if you're just kind of like, I'm just checking things out. It's been four years. Make a commitment. And so God wants to move us from observing him to experiencing him. He tells a story about Noah, and a lot of you don't know a whole lot about, or excuse me, some of you may not know a lot about Noah, but it's a guy in the Old Testament, and God raised him up to build this ark because God said this, I was sorry that I made mankind. So he floods the earth, but he saves Noah, and he saves Noah through this ark, and, and he saves his family and the animals, you know, groups of seven, groups of twos, they come on, and he starts over with Noah and his family. And that day or those years that Noah was building the ark, a lot of people were observing his work. And when the waters began to surge up from the ground and from the sky, they were observing the ark, but they weren't on the boat. There's a difference between observing the deliverance through judgment and actually being on the boat and experiencing it. And Jesus is offering to you an invitation tonight to know him, not just to get out of hell free card, but to know the king of glory. 
And man, I love powerful things. I don't know if you've ever been on like a powerful motorcycle or a powerful horse or a powerful plane. I got this opportunity to ride this thing. It's called a Whirlpool jet boat. And they take these big boats and they go upstream. We went on one in the Niagara River. The Niagara River is a crazy big river. It's the one that has the falls. And we got to go in class five and class six rapids. Actually, we just got to view class six because it's illegal to go in those class five rapids. And we got to go and we got to experience the power of this boat. I put together a 15-second clip. Y'all can watch me uh, having a good time real quick so you get the idea. Y'all play that video. Are we human or are we dancer? My sign is vital. My hands are cold. Gotta let me know Some of y'all, that was your jam right there, right? You're like, oh, bringing it back. <laughs> 2012. All right, anyway, so listen, I would have never have known the power of that boat to be able to climb the current of the river. This is going to be simple. If I didn't get on it. I would have never known the power of the boat and the thrill of the ride if I just observed from the bank. And a lot of you come in here tonight and you're not experiencing the power of Jesus in your life because you're just an observer. Paul said like this, he said, oh, I want to know him. I counted all as lost. I'm all in. I want to know him. He says, and I, I want to... I Know the power that lies within him. He says, first, I want to know him, but also I want to know the power of his resurrection. And he longed to have this power, but it begs the question, how do we get the power? And as we finish tonight, I'm going to invite Skylar up on the stage. And I just want to tell you three ways that you can access the power, man. The first way is simply you just got to get on the boat. Again, I would have never experienced the power of the Whirlpool Jet Boat Tour. Awesomeness going in Class 5 Rapids, getting the deluge of water on top of me if I never got on the boat. How do you get on the boat? Well, tonight, here in a minute, we're going to finish this deal, and there's going to be a team of young adults up here. Man, they would love to talk with you about how you get on the boat. For me, it was a prayer. Prayer isn't magical, but it is a starting point, and we all need a starting point to take our next step towards God. And so maybe tonight, if you... You've heard the bad news and you want the good news to become a reality in your life. Maybe tonight you come down and grab one of these men or women by the hand and say, look, I need to get on the boat. Or maybe you, you're on the boat, but you haven't taken your next step in Christ. Peter, he talks about how baptism, it's, a, it's an antitype or it's a, it's a way of expressing that we have had this renewal. That it's not about, you know, getting clean or, or taking a bath, but it's about the bath that's taking place on the internal. And so maybe some of you need to be baptized. The reason why we do baptism is not so that you would be saved, but guys, I would have never experienced the water if I wasn't on the boat. And so we experience the water once we step into a right relationship with God. And it's about a declaration. It's about a proclamation saying, I am following Jesus. And when you step out in obedience, God promises to be there in his nearness, and he is the source of eternal power. 
Or, or another way, you can get power, man. You got to get on the boat. You got to take your next step, be baptized, or you got to get into a community group. Like, I would have never experienced the joy of the Whirlpool Jet Boat Tour if I was, like, by myself like I would with the group. Guys, you are called to do life together. No man is an island. We need each other. When you get in the presence of God's people, there is power. When we declare the praises and the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, there is power. And then Peter, I love this because he starts with Jesus on the cross and he finishes with Jesus reigning victoriously. And to remind you in verse 22, he says, Jesus has gone into heaven. He has set at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and powers. They've been made subject to him. Do you have this power? What demons do you need to let Jesus declare his dominance over in your life? What demon is plaguing you? What demon has got you pinned down? Is it your anxiety, your anger that you masturbate all the time, that you're looking at porn all the time? Is it a substance deal? Is it a codependency? Is it a sexual issue? Is it a love for things? What is the demon that is calling for your heart's affection every day? And are you allowing Jesus to declare his dominance that in me there is victory? I think a lot of us have more faith in our sin than we do in the cross and the resurrection power of Christ. Stop putting faith in those things that plague you and start walking in the power that Christ has extended to you. Let's pray. God, we simply just want you God, we count all things lost just so that we can know you. And when we get you, we get the benefits package. We get to know the power of your resurrection. And God, I pray that that would come alive in some of our hearts tonight. God, that we wouldn't buy into a gospel that is so watered down with you get this, you get that. But God, we would buy into a biblical gospel that says the point is so that you can know me. So, God, I pray that you would awaken hearts and that we would come to you as children and that we would see you reigning victoriously over the demons that are in our life and we would get off the shore of observation and we would step onto the boat and experience your power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.